He made us that way on purpose. That's why we have science and all kinds of very clever things that we've figured out. God's designed us to operate that way. But you look at, again, even the basis for our science is the scientific method. We were talking about this Thursday night Bible study. And the scientific method assumes that my senses are the ultimate standard for truth. That I can replicate an experiment and I can witness the truth of it. And what God is saying is, look, you, you, you can't even understand the simple things in life. But more than that, you can't tell me what's true and what's right and what's lovely and what heaven is like because you have not seen it. I can. Christ can because he's been there. Setting up the contrast between will you trust God or will you trust yourself? And he pushes on that and takes it further. Not simply stopping with being a witness to salvation, but then actually setting up the way to salvation, the way of salvation. I've told you earthly things you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things like Nicodemus? You you missed it, buddy. If if I'm talking about the things here and you don't trust me, how are you going to trust me on things that are not revealed yet, that are from heaven? No one's ascended into heaven except the one who's come from heaven itself, the Son of Man, Jesus, the one who is talking. And then he uses his illustration here. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. See, I kind of already tipped my hand actually a little bit in the previous section of the reading where if I were part of Israel, I certainly would have been one of the complainers. And then after the Lord provided the way of salvation, I still would have been one of the complainers. Because, see, I'm not really cool with the idea of getting bit by snakes and then looking at something to be healed, only to be bit by a snake again, to be healed again, to be bit by a snake again, because I don't really like snakes. In fact, actually, I might need to be healed both of the poison and the heart attack that would follow after being bit by a snake. I don't do snakes. One of my hallmates at Covenant had pet snakes in his room. I don't understand it. It grossed me out, but he always used to take them out and like let the babies crawl around his fingers. It was really gross. And I remember one time he was saying, you know, I just don't understand this. They just keep biting me. I don't understand why they don't calm down. And I'm like, why do you keep playing with them if they keep biting you? And what Jesus is actually going to kind of hinting at here and highlighting is that God has a specific plan for how salvation will work. And if we are kind of new to the faith or evaluating it, it might not be the way that we like. In fact, actually, the scriptures go so far as to call his plan scandalous. You think about it. I mean, we've grown up in the Bible, most of us. We've grown up in the New Testament era. We we kind of don't think about it in these terms anymore. But just step back for a moment. This is why common texts are so difficult. Step back for a moment and just pause and reflect. The triune God, one God, three persons, coexisting in himself, perfectly blessed, perfectly happy in himself, troubled by no thing at all, not lonely, makes creation as a realm to display his glory. That's why God makes creation, not because he's lonely, but to showcase his glory. 
And as the pinnacle, the the crown jewel of that creation, he makes one creature particularly to showcase his glory because it would actually have a portion of his glory in it. People. We'd be made in his image, meaning we have part of his glory like in us, so that when we look at each other, we see him in some sense. And then those creatures would become the greatest traitors in the history of matter. Those ones that were the pinnacle of creation, those ones that were designed to show his glory by having a portion of it in us would turn traitors and actually say, no, we're not, we're not on God's team anymore. We hate him, you know, ah, I hate God and we're going to go do our own thing. Now, if we understand that correctly and we're rooting for the right side, our cheering would be like, go God, zap them all because they're such bad guys. The people are such bad guys, we would be rooting for the Lord to incinerate everybody. Because we're people and we've kind of grown accustomed to the gospel, we forget how big that gap is. And then that God would agree amongst himself, the three persons would have already made a covenant even before this happened, that one of those persons would step inside time. Now understand, that is a huge deal because God created time. There was a period where it didn't exist, and he made it. And he made matter, it didn't exist. And Jesus, second person of the Trinity, would step inside time. And step inside space, and for the first time ever, if you can really say that, part of God, a person, is connected to the timeline. Where Jesus has cause and effect. This never happened for God before. He's never been stuck in one place at one time. He's, he's never been inside a timeline of any sorts. And he steps inside time and space. And he steps inside not just time and space, but he steps inside humanity. And not only does he step inside humanity, he steps inside poor, middle of nowhere, unimportant Jewish carpenter humanity. As if that were bad enough. And then eventually steps inside the sins of all of his people, humanity. And if we actually pause to consider that, it would be so staggeringly gross and heinous that the perfect God would step inside my sin. It would bother us. In fact, actually, most of us, many of us, not most, many of us, don't actually think we're that bad. And so when Jesus steps inside kind of like me, I'm like, all right, that might have been an improvement of sorts. No, no, it's not. It's really a big deal. And then on top of that, to think about God's plan of salvation... The plan he designed involved the death of his beloved son. Obviously, I'm a father. I can tell you out of all the plans I would ever design in the world, one that involved intentionally the death of my child might be the last one I could possibly think of. I mean, if I'm going to be really crass, I don't even want to think about the number of strangers I would be willing to sacrifice to save my one. Would I be willing to sacrifice all strangers to save my one? It might be. I really might. And yet God's plan to save not just strangers, but to save the traitors, to save the people that hated him, to save the people who are his enemies, involves intentionally the plan to sacrifice his son. There's one way 
one way to heaven. It is God's plan of salvation. Now, the reality of the matter is this already is an affront to our current culture because our current culture wants salvation to be any way we can have it. Whatever you believe, it's fine. Just as long as you believe it hard enough, it's okay. doesn't matter. Every way is a way to heaven. Just as long as you believe and believe strongly enough, it's okay. I saw a survey last night, actually, conducted by the Southern Baptist Convention and the percentage of people who profess to be Christian who say all religions are just as good and all lead to heaven is scary high. I'll give you a hint. It's higher than 40% and lower than 60 Yes, scary high. Because our American sensibilities are offended by the idea that one way is right and every other way is wrong. But yet there's only one way. There was one serpent lifted up. in the. Now, I mean, I guess you could try to walk off the fiery serpent bite. It's not going to hurt that bad, I guess, until it kills you. But it's up to you. You could try that route, I guess. But if you didn't want to die from the fiery serpent, you had to look at the, the bronze one up in the sky. That was the only option you had. It was God's way or it was no way. Understand that. That's the significance. It's God's way or it's no way. All right, going quickly. <clears throat> God is the only witness to salvation because it comes from heaven. God is the only one to craft a plan for salvation. It's his way or it's no way. But it's for his purpose. And it's fun. This is where the story gets amazing and kind of, again, mind mushing as it changes us. Jesus transitions from saying, look, it's, it's God's way or the highway. There's only one way to heaven, and it is in the plan that God has set apart. And why did he do it? Well, verse 16, for God so loved. And this is astonishing. It's staggering. For God so loved. And I, I would suggest many of us, again, we read that and we're like, well, yeah, duh, of course he did. And, and tragically, there's two reasons for that. One is because we've been trained from the very beginning because we you know, grew up in the church that God is love. And that's good. We should have that. But the bigger thing I would say, again, for many of us is because we believe we're lovely. Well, of course God is love. Have you seen me? Ah. <laughs> Why would he not love me? I'm wonderful. Uh, I'm poking a bit fun of myself, but we probably hold that in our hearts a little bit more than we might if we were honest about it. We say God so loved the world, and we know that God loves me, and the reason why God loves me is because I am worthy of love, which is patently false. That is what we call a lie from the devil. It's absolutely 100% untrue. I'm not lovely and neither are you. You're not lovable. I'm not lovable because we are traitors to the throne. We are the enemy. We are the ones that have been guilty of tragic and heinous abominations. If you've been following the news this week about the gentleman who was caught outside of Anderson... Right? You may, maybe not. You caught that, right? We have a case of like CSI, one of those types of things, serial, multiple bodies dug, you know, the whole works, people chained up, hidden in cabins, that awful, awful, awful. We look at that guy and we say, oh, he's unlovely at all. I hate that guy. That's how God saw us prior to this. Guilty of all kinds of abominations, all of the type of people that we want to say, those are the rejects, those are the unlovelies, those are the ones that we hate. That's what we looked like prior to this. 
God so loves the world. Well, now uh, we have to define that term. So loves the world. John uses that a number of ways. What does he mean by it? Does it mean so loves this creation? Like all creation. Well, no. It's going to be incinerated. It'll pass away. There's going to be a new one to come. Does it mean all people, every human everywhere? Well, no. He's going to tell us about that in just a second. What John is meaning here is that God so loves his people that are scattered throughout the world. No longer is salvation confined to Jews. It's now happily including folks from Europe and folks from Panama and folks from Japan and folks from England and folks from South Africa. It's all over and encompassing all kinds of people, his people. God so loved his people all over the world that he gave his only son. He sacrificed his son for those folks so that whoever believes in him would not perish eternally, but have eternal life. Just as the bronze serpent was the way of salvation in ancient times, Christ has become the way of salvation today. And amazing again to think about if we understand just the slightest hint of the betrayal how deep the love is. I have one friend who is very dear to me who I, I don't understand at all, probably a sociopath of some kind, I'm sure, but loves books and movies with that kind of gut-wrenching moment of betrayal. Loves that moment in the story where you find out, oh no, you've been trusting the wrong one the whole time. And I could use illustrations of it, but it'd ruin it for you because you probably haven't seen them. And then when you see it or read it, it would go, oh, well, that wasn't very good. My friend loves those types of stories and loves that moment of angst when you see the person just crushing really realize, oh no, I've been betrayed. And just how much you as the reader instantaneously loathe the betrayer. God so loved us that in the midst of being those betrayers, he gave his only son. That whoever believes in that son would not perish but have eternal life. That's his method. To look to the Son and be saved. To believe in the Son and be saved. To trust in the Son and be saved. And it is an amazing method for salvation. That it's unbelievably costly. It was the most costly battle tactic that could have been conceived. That it would cost the blood of the second person of the train, cost the blood of Jesus. Could not conceive a more costly battle tactic. But that it would then be given to those betrayers for free. I mean, that is, again, just mind blowing to be able to give the gift away at literally no cost. In fact, actually, to be able to give the gift away on the one condition that you don't pay anything for it. Because you can't. And you won't accept payment. You, everybody has that friend, right, that you give gifts to. And they're like, oh, thank you for the gift. Here's a $5 gift card. No, it was a gift. I didn't give it to you so you give me something in return. I gave it to you because I want to give you a gift. That's not how salvation works. God gives you a gift. That's it. Now, it will have consequences, but it's free. 
It's given at His expense and not ours. The Son saved the traitors. Well, this is all good news. This is all happy news. This is amazing news. Well, yes, but. That's how the Bible works. Yes, but. It it is all good news. It's all happy news for God's people. Because Jesus hasn't yet told them what the background of the play is. He's told them what action is happening on the stage, but he hasn't told them what the set looks like behind What does the set look like? Well, verse 17 begins to show it. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. So for these that are God's people, He didn't send Jesus to condemn them, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So for God's people, those they're going to be safe, not condemned. Why? Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him is already condemned. And that's actually the point that he's making is that when this play starts, when the, when the, when the curtains open for the, the actions of Jesus, the backdrop is condemnation. That everyone in the room is already guilty. Everyone in the room already has no hope. Using the illustration of the serpents earlier, everyone in the room has already been bitten and deservedly. And it's just a matter of time until we die. You see, that's the backstory. That's the backdrop for the actions of Christ is that we all have been judged. We all have been found guilty based upon our own actions. We all have no hope. We all already have that death in our bodies and in our souls. And it's only a matter of time until it gets us. And it's in that backdrop that the free gift is offered. It's in the midst of that hopelessness, that weariness of that that soul-crushing depression, that freedom is given. This is God's method for salvation, that while judgment exists for all, salvation is given freely. Now, there is going to be a temptation. And the temptation would be to think that we've got this when we don't. Or to treat it kind of flippantly or casually or to say, well, of course, I believe in Jesus. All right. And then not really do anything with it. And Christ addressed that in the end, verses 19 through 21. If you believe in Jesus, if you accept this free gift, it is so powerful that it will transform you. It will. There's no way that it doesn't. It it actually remakes you from the inside out so much so that your actions are altered. And when you hold them up to the light, you can actually look at those actions and see that they're different. I remember when I was young, uh, one of, it's probably uh, seventh grade actually, um, one of the ladies in our middle school, the moms in our middle school got cancer. And she had long, beautiful, straight black hair that was down to her, uh, you know, her belt. And as part of the chemo, lost it all. And when it grew back in, she was a curly ginger. And I'm talking like a knight, curly ginger. I mean, beautiful, gorgeous red hair. And nobody knew what to do with it. They're like, what happened to you? They couldn't figure it out. Like, the wig is amazing. Why did you go with that color? Like, That's actually the natural now. 
The medicine had remade her on the inside so differently that you couldn't help but notice it on the outside. You couldn't not see that she was different. You can tell from across the parking lot, something happened to Miss So-and-so. She's new. Yes, yes, she is. What a beautiful portrait of how Christianity works. When you receive this free gift, it will alter you. And if you haven't been altered, well, you need to have maybe a bit of thought there. We have transformed lives because of Christ. Now, very quickly, what do we do with this? Well, we're coming to the table, which is a gift, a part of that free gift, actually. It's interesting how the Lord gives gifts and then gifts and then gifts on top of those gifts. This is a gift in which God's people are gathered. For those that have already received Christ, this table is a table in which you are strengthened in that. This is a pretty amazing thought. That you're receiving a free gift, but you might actually be bad at receiving that gift. And so the Lord has given you an additional free gift to help you in the process of receiving the first free gift. That's pretty cool. (laughs) To account for our weakness, he strengthens us by giving us more free things. Because at this table, we will feast upon the Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We do ask that you would work in and through us. Transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.